From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's the first state law of its kind in the country. We'll talk about how it should help ensure that underrepresented communities are not overcharged for insurance in Colorado. Then, high fashion from the unlikeliest of materials. I said, you know what, this new collection is going to be like Mother Earth. Mm. You know, how the corn grows and how the corn unites all of us as a culture. And so I said, I'm going to do the whole collection made out of corn instead of rhinestones this year. I visit with the founder of Latin Fashion Week Colorado, whose message of empowerment, inclusion, and support for women goes far beyond haute couture. Anybody that are little and they see my story, you know, is for them to understand that as long as you are doing the right thing, don't be scared or fight for your rights. What you get on a daily basis from Colorado Public Radio is thanks in large part to an ever-growing and dedicated community of support. As a member, you do more than listen. You help fund CPR. Thank you. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Colorado passed a first-in-the-nation law last year, ensuring that insurance companies cannot set rates in a way that discriminates against people from traditionally underrepresented communities. For example, using algorithms that force Black people to pay more for coverage because of their race. Enforcing that law means taking a deep dive into the sometimes arcane data that goes into the formula that determines how much we pay for car and life insurance. It's a job that falls to Colorado's insurance commissioner, Mike Conway, who joins us now. Welcome to Colorado Matters. Good morning, Chandra. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for being here. So some national studies have shown that some people pay more for insurance due to their race. Now, insurance companies say everything's based on risk, not race. Do we know for certain if this is happening in Colorado? So, Shana, that's exactly what uh, the law that, that was passed last year is is really designed to, to answer. Um, it's designed to a- answer the, the question of whether or not the algorithms, as you just uh, talked about in your intro, are leading to discriminatory impacts for all protected classes of people, um, for people that are underserved, as you said, but also just all protected classes of people across the board. Now, this law specifically targets the algorithms that insurance insurance companies use to calculate risk and set the prices. But shouldn't computers be more race blind than, say, humans? (laughs) In theory, Chandra, that that, that would make a ton of sense. Um, The the problem is that we I think the problem there's the problem is really twofold. One, first and foremost, those algorithms are built by humans. Um, and, And as we know, we all have implicit bias that finds its way into our life in different ways, and it certainly can find its way into algorithms. But keep in mind, too, that we're just at the tip of the iceberg when we're talking about algorithms. We're also going to be talking in years to come about machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we embark into the world of machine learning, it's going to be really, really important that we're asking really kind of enterprises across the board, but from our perspective, insurance companies in particular, to be testing their algorithms, to be testing their machine learning system, to make sure that there isn't discriminatory impacts happening. What is some of the surprising data that has shown up in these algorithms? 
So we're still at the forefront of really kind of developing the regulatory mechanisms to answer those questions. Um, so we haven't dived into whether or not there is surprising data. But what we're focusing on right now is having those kind of in-depth conversations of developing a first in the nation regulatory mechanism to answer some really hard questions about whether or not algorithms and machine learning are having discriminatory impacts in ways that if it wasn't for those algorithms or <clears throat> excuse me, the machine learning mechanisms that might come into play, the insurance companies on their own would have never in a million years put in place. So it's really kind of testing those outcomes, Chandra, that we're really gonna be focusing on going forward to make sure that the insurance companies aren't having those unintentional impacts and, and treating people unfairly. Now I read that in some cases, this algorithm includes how many friends you have on social media, what your LinkedIn connections are, what organizations you belong to. How does that, you know, how would that matter in terms of your insurance coverage? Yeah, Shandra, our law, our law really focuses on what it defines as external consumer data. And it's those exact types of information that you're talking about. So it can be things like the number of friends you have on Facebook, the number of LinkedIn connections you have. It can be things like your income, where you went to school, if you went to college or if you have a high school diploma. The amount of data that is out there about all of us is incredibly extensive. Mm. And insurance companies are starting to use that um, to try and be more efficient. And that's great. We want them to be more efficient. But we also need to ensure that they're using that data responsibly. Um, and that's really what we're asking the question of, right? Is it is it responsible to use things that don't data that don't have a direct connection to the underlying risk that you're insuring? Um, and if it is, if there is some sort of connection to the underlying risk based on those that data, based on the fact that you have 500 LinkedIn friends or LinkedIn connections rather than 400 LinkedIn connections, <laughs> prove to us that there isn't some unfair discriminatory impact that is happening at the same time, right? That's that's the balancing test that is really at the heart of our law. Now, how are insurance companies reacting to this law? I, I would say that there's been an evolution of, uh, of reaction. Um, initially, Shonda, they, when, when, uh, when Senator Buckner uh, first introduced the bill, Senator Buckner was the legislative champion on this one, when she first introduced the bill, there was a lot of hand-wringing um, by the insurance companies. They were extremely nervous about how it was going to really come into play and how it was going to impact their business model. What we found, though, is that as we've had more conversations about really what we're attempting to achieve and that we're attempting to achieve something that the insurance companies are aligned with us on, they don't want to have, they don't want to discriminate against people either. Um, and if they are discriminating against people, they want to figure it out and fix it. That's what we're trying to achieve here. So as the conversations have evolved, um, the insurance companies have started to slowly come on board. But that's Shonda why we started with life insurance. The life insurance industry um, really was at the table in a more meaningful way than some of the other types of insurance as mm -hmm. the legislation was working its way through. And we wanted that partner. And that's why we started with the life insurance companies. Now, insurance advocates continue to argue that they focus on risk and not race. And that's why they can't be biased. What's your response to that? My response to that, Chandra, is let's prove that that's actually correct, that that's true, right? And the problem is that their algorithms themselves, when you talk to some, when you talk to insurance companies generally, what they will tell you quite often is that they don't fully understand and comprehend 
what exactly is happening with their algorithm and the outcome that is occurring because of their algorithm. And like I would, like we said before, that's just going to get more complex as we move forward when machine learning comes into play. So let's prove that we don't have issues, right? Let's do the work. Let's test and figure out whether we have issues. If we don't, that's great. Then let's, let's, let's shout it from the mountaintops that we don't have issues. But if we do have issues, let's find them and fix them. The only bad outcome, Shonda, from, from my vantage point, is if mm -hmm. we just don't do the work, right? If we don't do the work as regulators, as the industry, and then somebody else comes along and says, look at this glaring problem that you all have as an industry. Look at the discriminatory impact your algorithms, your machine learning are having on protected classes of people, and you've done nothing about it. That, mm -hmm. to me, it can't be the answer. So we've got to do the work. Now, as I mentioned in the intro, Colorado is the first in the nation to pass this type of legislation. So what is it like being out front? It's fun. Um, it's fun in a lot of ways, right? It's fun having the conversations, figuring this out. We're the first in the nation to, to pass a law kind of at, at this level of complexity. But these conversations have been out there really for decades. It started with credit insurance in the early 2000s um, when insurance companies first started bringing credit insurance into their calculation to try and figure out what the risk was um, in their book of business. But it's evolved, right? As the, as the world has evolved, as big data has evolved, it's evolved to now where we're talking about much more complex data than just your credit score. Mm. So it's interesting um, and it's fun from the standpoint that we've got the, the country looking to see what it is that we're implementing and looking to see if it's something that can be replicated across the country. Now, for most of us customers, it's all about the bottom line. So my question is, will some Coloradans end up paying less because of this law, but will some end up paying more? So keep in mind that the whole purpose of this law, right, is to, is to ferret out whether or not there's a discriminatory impact that is causing people to pay more, right? That's, mm -hmm. what, we're, that's what we're looking for. That's what this law is designed to do. And that's what we're going to be focused on. So hopefully, like I said, hopefully we're going to find that there that there isn't a discriminatory impact that is happening in our marketplace. But if there is, then we're going to fix it. We're going to solve for it. And we're going to make sure that people are paying appropriate rates. Oh, this is definitely one to watch. Michael, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much. Have a great day. You too. Michael Conway is Colorado's insurance commissioner. We've been talking about a new state law passed in Colorado that aims to create more equity when it comes to insurance rates. When we come back, a couture gown made of kernels of corn? You'll be amazed as we visit with the designer behind Latin Fashion Week Colorado. You're with CPR News and KRCC. She thinks her ability to Google is going to figure out some big global conspiracy. That so many issues have wedged families apart the last few years. Personal, political, a global pandemic. I haven't wanted to ask if you were going to get vaccinated because I couldn't live with the terror that brings in me. How one mother and daughter unwedged the issues that divided them. Colorado Public Radio presents The Wedge, everywhere you get your podcasts. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. It's been a busy year for Norberto Maherdin. He's the creator of Latin Fashion Week Colorado and responsible for creating one of the largest Dia de los Muertos displays in the nation, right here in Metro Denver. He's a hairstylist and a visual artist. He streams a cooking show. And by the way, he's also a brand new father. 
I caught up with Beto, as he's known, at his home in Commerce City, which also serves as his design studio. And I just had to ask what inspires him. Well, for me, it's to be proud of who I am and be proud of how I embrace different cultures. Mm. You know, me as an immigrant coming to the U.S., you needed it to be open to learn from others, mm. not to come here to this country and impone my traditions. No, first to learn from everyone and mm-hmm. then to let them know who I was. So that's how I started with Latin Fashion Week also. Mm-hmm. You know, it was an area where I didn't see the diversity. I didn't see the respect of appropriation in culture and in skin and in, in traditions. In the fashion world. In the fashion world. And I said, no, we have to teach them, but in a good way, doing mm. art and fashion. Art, you never go wrong, you know. Well, you have and that fashion, under control, I see. You are, <laughs> you just got double dippings, triple dippings in the talent department, I see. Mm-hmm. Yes. You do hair, you do art, <laughs> you design clothes. I'm sure there's some other... <laughs> Things you do as well. Yeah. <laughs> and it was funny because I started with the hair shows. Oh. With the hair shows. So my creativity is, uh, for me, I, sometimes I see it and I go, wow, how, how I did that. And But I didn't find any designer that would go with my concept of my imagination. Because I was doing the hair, but I couldn't find anyone that can design with something that look? will blend with the look. And mine is very avant-garde and fantasy, but very, very sweet, like mm-hmm. roses and flowers, very... Still not, has like a romantic Not into the dark feel. side. Yes, very and romantic feminine. and f- super feminine and sexy. And, and, and I, I can be pretty edgy too, <laughs> so, in its own way. Yes. And, yes. and I said, no, I have to start designing in my own. So when I start putting things together, they're like, who did these designs? And I said, I did. And then I start noticing that people love that. I yes. mean, I didn't design it so, since I was like a little kid designing for Barbies for my cousins, right? <laughs> <laughs> I never thought I was going to end up designing I for mannequins. I was a big Barbie person, so I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's set the scene. Tell us where we are right now and what is behind us. Well, you're, you're in my home and we can call it studio. Here where you are right now is where I have my cooking channel, which is Tu Sabor with Beto and Pancho. So you can see it in YouTube. And here is where we start doing, this was our set uh, of the kitchen. And we stopped the program because of the pandemic. Mm. So we're about to start it again. So cooking is on the list too. Oh, honey, everything is on the list. As long as I can educate someone you know, and help someone to feel better, I'll do anything. Well, I don't know if I feel better. I kind of feel like a slacker standing next to you. <laughs> like, I'm just a journalist, that's all. Oh, thank you. Well, let's no, take a look yeah. at these beautiful mannequins positioned behind us. And let's start with this look here. Tell us about it. Yeah, you know the collection and see all the collection this year was made out of corn. Normally, I like to use a la Swarovski and crystals and embroidering. Mm. But this time of a year, for me, uh, maybe of the time of life that I'm going through to be a dad. So from there, everything started. And I said, you know what? This new collection is going to be like Mother Earth. Mm. You know, how the corn grows and how the corn unites us, all of us as a culture. culture. Mm. And so I said, I'm going to do the whole collection made out of corn instead of rhinestones this year. Wow. And that's how I started it. Mm. And then 
as you see, some of the dresses they have colorful roses and flowers. The reason of the of the colorful, the meaning is in all shapes and color in women. You know how diverse we are as a community. So describe this dress ones. here in front mm -hmm. of us. Yeah, this one is totally Mother Earth because of the nature. This dress is done in a mesh. It's totally fit in the woman's body. Mm, so when very you fitted. when you see it. You are, and you don't see much hips on this mannequin, but normally this dress is designed for hips. So when you see it live, you will see like it's corn, basically. So corn up. beading, essentially. Uh -huh. Wow. Uh, what a ivory color. How would you yeah, describe this is it? Yeah, this is the natural color. Natural of the color corn. of corn. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And this is a full-length gown from... Yes. This is all the way to the floor totally. with almost like a little mini train behind yes. it yes it has a little train uh for people that they see miss universe they're gonna love these dresses oh my gosh <laughs> because just, they're all just ball gowns you know i really want them to make look elegant and i mean and then have a little bit of sparkle too has a little bit of mirrors absolutely around i it, love that just to give it a nice elegant concept to it but without taking up too much attention from the corn just curious, mm -hmm. is this pretty heavy or is it they on the lighter heavy. side? They are heavy. They are heavy. Uh, so like the like the heavy beating, but this in, in this oh, case yeah. is in corn. corn is is double on, on double um, heavy. It was funny because I would go to the store and they're like, "Oh, do you make menudo or, <laughs> or <laughs> corn soup?" <laughs> oh my and I said, gosh. "No, I don't sell that, but I'm making a dress with it." <laughs> Okay, you have this plate of corn, colored corn. It's yeah. it's yellow, it's purple, it's orange and red and turquoise. And you colored this. Yes, definitely it's a whole process on this. Because normally if you will get to glue one piece of corn into a dress or ten, it will come off automatically because the, the corn... Uh, the seed has a little skin on the outside that protects the inside. Mm -hmm. So what I did is was just to cook it first to make sure corn. that the skin in the outside, it gets gluey. So by the time it dries, it will glue into the corn. And then we dye it of the color you want and then put it again to dry. Now, how yeah. do you attach it to the dress? Uh, gluing it every single one by every one. Sing now, I mean, this dress that we're looking at, the, mm -hmm. the natural color corn. Yes. I mean, every what's your guesstimate of how many individual kernels oh of God. corn You know what? I, I, I started counting at the beginning. <laughs> You like, yeah, it, it's bad. Like you know, it's a lot when you just can't even keep up with it. Yes, and you know, in in the the the, the part here is that corn is in different sizes, so you have to find the right oh, size to keep it more uniform. Yes. You want to keep it consistent. Exactly. So one dress it would take at least five days to make, wow. and we're talking about twenty hours a day. Uh, why? Because we have to be separating in them and then choosing from the biggest one to the smallest one. Wow. And then as you see at the final of the dresses, you see those little ends at the end. It's, so it's just the... Unbelievable. Cutting them. And so it's like a mosaic. Well, do you remember the moment when you got the idea specifically to work with corn this year? When was it? Yeah, did you, was it like a dream? Was it like you were walking through the supermarket? Uh -huh. Like, when did you get the idea? Like, that's it, corn. Uh -huh. No, you know what? 
how many years ago? We're talking about like, uh, like five years ago or six years ago. I did a collection that it was made out of corn husk, but not husk. the corn. Seeds. Not the actual. These are corn. And it was one yeah. dress that was the only dress that had a little bit of the process, but I didn't continue it because uh, it, it was coming off and it yeah, was it just a wasn't mess. working. No. So I, as soon as I prepared and I had the right consistency and the right material. So you had to kind of I experiment said, to, until yes, you got the process done. Totally. And, and you know what, what it got me that I said, I have to throw a message with this collection and it has to be corn. It was when um, the, the, the court decided it of what woman needed it to uh, do uh, to accept abortion. You is know, it the uh, you mean the Roe Ro versus Wade um, overturning? Yes, you know when 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 the court decide they decide that abortion is gonna be uh, a criminal charges to a woman. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry if I'm not yeah, saying I understand. it right. Yeah, I understand but for me, I didn't agree with that. You know how can someone tell a woman what to do with her body? Mm -hmm. And for me, you know she does. Woman does enough for us all the time since we're born. And for me, I have so much respect for women because women has, is in me from child to the best experience to the worst, a woman is the one that has been there for me. And so, I'm wondering that, that it must allow you to connect totally. with the fashion because totally. you're kind of understanding oh, who's course. wearing this. Of course. And then having a hair salon, you know, you talk to women. My <laughs> hair salon has been oh, yeah. there for almost, almost 18 years, almost 20 years. So imagine all the stories that I hear from women, you yes. know, from in that, especially the immigrant woman from Venezuela, Mexico, Colombia, you know, all these, all the, the, the tragedies that they go through, all, and then they come to this country and then they have to face the discrimination. They have to face the, the, if they fit or not. And so, and, and not only that, but just women in sea, mm -hmm. you know, so all the stories have teach me how to love her more and how for me to be a better person. I'm speaking with Beto Moherden, founder of Latin Fashion Week Colorado. We come back how Beto's grandmother inspires his designs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The stretch of Highway 550 between Silverton and Uray takes drivers over Red Mountain Pass at 11,000 feet without guardrails on its narrowest sections. The road clings precariously to the edge of plunging cliffs and sees as much as 25 feet of snow each winter. It's terrified many a soul and taken a few. Yet wagon drivers paid to use the road in the late 1800s to get valuable ore from mines to market. When automobiles came along, few believed one could make the trip. But in 1911, a doctor went from Uray to Ironton in a Model T for a house call. After the road was paved in the 50s, it became a tourist destination. And since then, many travelers have braved the treacherous yet exhilarating 20-mile drive. It's called the Million Dollar Highway. But the awe-inspiring views and bragging rights to driving one of the world's most unforgettable roads are priceless. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with support from Sheets and Giggles. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. 
Beto Meherden is a fashion designer, an artist, a hairstylist, a cook, and he's also the founder of Latin Fashion Week Colorado. But his message and mission stretches far beyond one week. Let's rejoin my conversation with him inside his studio at his home in Commerce City. Let's take a look at this next dress. Gown, I'm sorry. Dress doesn't quite capture this. Tell me about this magnificent creation in front of us. Yeah, this one in, in, in particular, it reminds me of my grandmother. My yes. grandmother, when I, was a, when I was a child, she, for us to survive, you know, she was the she was the one that would be making food for that small little town and any art activity. Mm-hmm. But especially on the Day of the Dead, she will make uh, paper flowers, and everybody will order from her bouquets or the crowns to put mm-hmm. them on the on the on the on the wreath. Mm-hmm. So um, my grandmother, I used to wake up and I clearly remember. I will see so many flowers from so many colors and different shapes. Mm. And that's why this reminds me. So this dress is really festooned with these gorgeous flowers, colorful. Colorful. Yes. They are reds, yellows, pinks, different greens uh, to define where the vines of, of the flowers are and the leaves. And every detail of this one definitely um, it, it got me on, on, on my grandma. Let's start at the back of this beautiful gown here. What would you describe this material? It's got these dramatic mm-hmm. sleeves that are poofy, but it's like a very textured fabric set against beautiful, colorful flowers. When I was little and I used to go to the fields and to pick up the corn in Mexico, when, when I used to grow with my grandma, they used to send us to the field. I mean, we're talking about 10-year-old kids that uh, we used to do that and take care of cows too, like 300 heads wow. <laughs> at the age of 10. So imagine wow. that. But this one represents the sacks or the bags where we used to carry the beans, the rice, or the corn. And, and that takes me again back to where I was doing that. So in this now, how now uh, at my age now is a whole piece of a gown, mm-hmm. what it used to be just a little sack of where you put the, the grain or the, or the corn on it. So. And what also makes this one stand out is that this one is short, but it yes. has the dramatic train to kind of like get the low-high effect. <laughs> yes. And um, yes. it's really um, amazing how you can weave in a story into each piece. Like, yes. obviously, the flowers remind you of your grandmother. Da-da-da. But then you have this material, like a burlap yes. sack. And, and, and the reason why I create this is because what I want to uh, transmit to other new designers is that you don't need to have... Uh, much money to design just put your creativity out there you know don't let anything stop you of mat- like you always want to have the fancy materials you want to have but no it's not about that it's about how you work with the materials or what we what you have so at this for this nobody is going to imagine that you can make dresses like if someone sees this gown now they have the idea that they can make anything they want out of it and 
this will cost you what, like two dollars, three dollars a yard. So you know how to do it, but also make it accessible and approachable yeah. Yeah. to maybe even someone who's new to fashion yeah. to feel like you don't have to have like the highest materials. No. Um, you no. know, X dollars a yard, you can find and make something beautiful exactly. out of something very basic. Yes, and, and unexpected actually, because no. who would think of a burlap uh-huh. gown? Yes, and and if it's a kid out there of a teen that is a designer, he's at at the lands right now and listening to our conversation. Now he knows that he can make a dress out of those uh, sacks mm-hmm. or or anything that is around him that is strong and you can sew it. If you can sew it by hand, you can do anything you want. It seems that you are trying to do more than just put fashion out yeah. there. What exactly are you trying to do with Latin Fashion Week beyond the week of Latin Fashion uh-huh. Week? Uh-huh. So for me, taking the art into fashion mm. and getting the right attention, what I want is to have the opportunity when I can to throw the message that I think is in my heart. In this time of life, my message is, for women, protect women's rights. I think that's very important they, 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 to support her at this point in different areas. So for me, I'm using the platform to throw those messages, you know, for the homicides in Mexico and other countries, women homicides, that in here in the United States also with our Native Americans, they don't have justice. And so in every community, we have that. So right now, we have a platform that we can talk, and any designer can talk about his story without mm-hmm. me stopping them. You know, I think he needs to feel welcome. Here in Latin, you don't have to be Mexican or Colombian. No, you can be anybody you want from any country. You're welcome. Why? Because either way, in me, I'm, Latin, I'm Mexican, Indian, Jackie, Italian, and Japanese. So... See the mix that I have inside of me so anybody can come. A Japanese designer can come to Latin Fashion Week and be proud of presenting his collection and his own story of what he wants to do. Now, is there a Latin designer community in Colorado? Very small. Very small. Very small because they consider themselves seamstress. And and they don't feel that they can go out there and say, I'm a designer. In our culture, you know, for me, I stay behind all the time as an artist and as a designer because for me, you needed to go to school, have your certificate, now you are an artist. Now you're a designer. Mm. Now you're a chef. But one day I understood when I had my artwork and some of my dresses under a basement in my salon, and one client walks in there just by accident, she tells me, oh my God, you did this? I said, yeah, those are my paintings. You know, I said, I'll buy you all these paintings mm. for my restaurant. And, and, and that's when I realized when by seeing her eyes how valuable my work was. And I said, you know, I don't consider myself an artist. But do you like them? I was doubting of those art pieces already myself. And from that point on, now I always say, you don't need to go to school. Just love what you do. Mm-hmm. And you are an artist, you are a designer, you are a chef. When you see the face of the person that is eating or wearing or putting one of your pieces in your wall, you are already officially who you want to be. Now, you just mentioned that you didn't see it for yourself. 
And let's be clear, you are a fashion designer. You do hair. You're do a hair, hair stylist. And you hairstylist. have this cooking uh-huh. show, show. And you have all this beautiful art uh, here in your home studio that you painted and, and designed. And it was inspired by your life, your story, uh-huh. real people in your life. You talked about a lot of... Uh, people not seeing themselves as a designer like they're a seamstress they do alterations uh-huh. but they don't necessarily see themselves as like i'm going to create this yes so do you is that a huge component for you is you wanted people to see something that inspires them to step out and try to do this yes definitely i have a lady that she helps me to create certain gowns you know mm-hmm. and i always tell her come with me so you can see what you have done. It's not only me, it's you too. Yeah. So from there, now this woman, now she has clients, now she sews other dresses, and how I've been helping her, I've been inspiring her to now have that as a job and feed her children, you know? So you obviously chose to highlight women, women's issues. You're paying homage to your grandmother, but in many ways, you're also still fighting for your own self to be seen of in this course. world, in this industry. Of course, you know I, I just want to make sure that one day, if one of my childs or anybody that are little and they see my story, you know, is for them to understand that as long as you are doing the right thing, don't be scared or fight for your rights. You know, you, you are every human being. We, we have the power to create what we want to do, what we want to create. You know, just do it, you know. Now, you left behind your immediate family to live with relatives in Arizona <laughs> at the age of 10. Yes. And you never expected that life would be the way it is in this country. Not at all. You know, coming from a small little town, my grandma so happy. Me and her, bonded, <laughs> two in one. You light up every time you mention her. <laughs> yes. And, 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 but I was always like the little, the black little duck, you know? Mm. Uh, they never, you know, all, all, all the people around me, my cousins, my friends, everybody had their parents. I was the only one that was with my grandma. So they always say, you know, they will call me orphans, they will call me names, and, and then, you know, so nobody wanted me basically around because they say that I was a troublemaker. And they always used to tell my grandma, why, why are you taking care of him? Why don't you send him to his mother, you know, <laughs> to take care of him? And she's she like, believed in you. And she, yeah. She would tell them, well, because he's my cane. Did I say it right when you hold? Yes. <laughs> because she's my, he's my cane, you know, he's the one that takes me to the store. He does all, all my needs. He helps me sell the food and we're happy. If you guys don't want him, just don't come to my house. You seem to always have this determination. You worked at barbershops and hair salons uh-huh. across Denver. Yes. yes. And now you own and have for quite mm-hmm. a while owned a hair salon. Yes. So how does that add to your story? Being a part of who you are and your identity here in Denver. For me, it's a blessing. At the time, I needed it, a new world, a new life. Change. So when I moved here to Colorado, the first thing that I said, I need to change careers. At the time, I was already a dancer, an artist, 
And but I all that will remind me of all what I went through the physical, mental, and sexual abuse on that state. And I said I need to start from the bottom. So when I moved here, uh, I was I used to be a homeless for a while, but I always clean shoes. And I living in my car. Thank God I never needed it to do drugs or anything like that. I was just any other person that lives in a car. I went and applied for a scholarship at Emily Griffith for, to do hair. Because when I arrived to Denver, they invited me to an art gallery, and it was at Cherry Creek. And I remember it was called uh, El Salon with Steve Trujillo, and it was Paul Garcia next door, too. So I look at those salons that were beautiful, and I see, you know, their movements in the art. You know, I, I, they, I was looking art on the hair, and I said, oh, I want to do this. So I already knew how to do makeup and hair, like updos, because of my dance skills. We needed to do hair and makeup for our partner. So all I needed to do is to learn how to do hair. So mm-hmm. when I go and I apply uh, to Emily Griffith, they gave me a scholarship. I graduated from there, and right away, I started being assistant of Steve Trujillo from El Salon and Paul Garcia from Paul Garcia Salon, mm-hmm. the best hairstylist I ever saw. And one person, and they're not alive anymore. You know, a couple of years they passed, both of them. And one of them that I still uh, is alive, and he a very good mentor, the way that I see work, Charlie Price. So, you know, those are awesome icons for me. And for now, to have my salon, eh, for me, it's like honoring them and for them, for my mentors to be proud that they teach a good a good kid, a good person to do hair. And now out of hair, I'm doing these wonderful gums. I'm making a difference in my community. I'm helping so many women uh, on their rights and organizations that I sponsor. So thanks to that, Salon. And you said the governor has acknowledged Latin yeah. Fashion Week? Yes. You know, the governor, the first year that he saw what I was doing, he did a proclamation uh, for Latin Fashion Week, and he did a day of Norberto Mojardin, also a proclamation, which it was beautiful to have the support. And I, in 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 his Incredible because I knew Jared before he was a Jared governor. Jared Polis, the governor. Yes. And you know, I see him around, and you know, and and he was he's been always the same, very, uh, very good person with everyone, always well dressed, well spoken. So for me, have him as a governor and as a friend, I consider him my friend because he he sees the 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 my life, you know by honoring me he's honoring my community so he's a friend of my community because he believes in us so he was at the fashion show and this year I got a silver medal this year from the government of Mexico that medal Jared Polis and Ken Salazar they got the medal before being under positions they are and that medal is given to Mexicans or people that support the Mexican in their culture and traditions in the exterior. You also are responsible for the largest Dia de los Muertos 
display in the country. Uh-huh. You've done that here yes. in Colorado. Here in Colorado, and, and I'm proud to say here in Colorado, there is many Dia de los Muertos celebrations and, and there are festivals, but the altar, I wanted to make sure that it was here, that we can keep something for us. So, and I started doing it when my mother, my grandma passed away. And for someone that celebrates that day, you have to feel it. You know, I know about that celebration for many, many years, and I never celebrated it because I never had someone that passed in my life. So my grandma, when my grandma passed away, I, I was upset at myself why I'm not crying, why I'm not upset like my uncles and aunts. And one day I understood, and it was because she was alive in me. Mm. So she, one day she told me uh, before coming to the U.S., Norberto, if you ever need me, all you have to do is go to the kitchen, put some beans to boil, put some onions, lettuce, uh, onions, uh, garlic, salt, and a bunch of uh, uh, cilantro. And when it boils and you smell the kitchen, it's because I already arrived. So that, just that little advice, it got me through the whole bad Everything. things that happened in my life. So when that came to my mind... I came to the house, I cooked the beans, and now I felt that my grandmother was here. Thank you so much. This has been amazing and totally interesting to hear like your backstory. No, it's my honor to have you here. Nabarto. Beto Moherden is a self-taught fashion designer, hairstylist, visual artist, chef, and the founder of Latin Fashion Week Colorado, which takes place in Denver in the fall. He's also responsible for designing the largest Dia de los Muertos altar in Colorado. Since my interview with him, he has become a first-time father to a newborn baby. Congratulations to you and your partner on that exciting news. You can learn more about Beto and Latin Fashion Week Colorado at latinfashionweekcolorado.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Colorado's Front Range. Just where does it start and end? Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food? What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound? These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom, and we want to hear from you, too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A brief update now. The suspect in the mass shooting at Club Q in Colorado Springs has been formally charged with 305 counts, including murder, attempted murder, assault with a deadly weapon, and bias-motivated crimes. The charges were just announced during a court hearing this morning. Anderson Lee Aldrich is accused of opening fire inside Club Q, killing five people and injuring many more just before midnight on Saturday, November 19th. It was the eve of Transgender Awareness Day. The suspect is in custody without bond. We expect to hear from the district attorney for Colorado's 4th Judicial District, Michael Allen, shortly. Now that the formal charges have been filed, we'll bring you continuing coverage on this case here on the radio 
and online at CPR.org. College faculty who don't have tenure are at the breaking point at the state's public universities. They point to huge pay gaps between faculty with the same degrees between departments, between men and women, and they say it isn't right or sustainable. CPR education reporter Jenny Brundine visited one campus, Colorado State University in Fort Collins, where non-tenure track faculty are raising alarm bells. And so this book and the challenge put forth to Arjuna is... John Kitchens loves teaching. similarities between the advice of the Stoics and... He pushes his students in this honor seminar class to think deeply and critically. I think it was Seneca or Marcus Aurelius that had something to say with... Kitchens attended CSU himself. My 20s and my experience at CSU really were some of the happiest and best times of my life, and I enjoy returning that to my students here. But he might not be able to stay in his dream job much longer. The Ph.D. instructor has been teaching 12 years. Up until recently, he was making less than $53,000 a year. Kitchens is what's called non-tenure-track faculty. That means he doesn't have job security. He teaches full-time, about eight classes a year, far more than most tenured faculty who tend to do more research. Tenured faculty are also paid significantly more. I mean, the discrepancies for people of the same rank and stature and length of time at this university is 70, 90, sometimes over $100,000. Two-thirds of what's left after Kitchen's paycheck deductions goes to mortgage and utilities. Last year, he worked several months in a leather warehouse to get by. He's looking for extra work now for the Christmas break. Low and inequitable pay, especially for non-tenure track faculty, is an issue at colleges across the nation. CSU faculty have raised the issue for years. In 2019, CSU administrators responded to faculty demands by raising the minimum salary floor to around 50000 and non-tenure-track faculty would finally be eligible for promotions. But with the skyrocketing cost of living of late... We're getting behind. We're chasing a moving target. That's Jan Nerger, CSU's interim provost. But we're very well aware of it, and, and it is truly our number one priority. University officials say they've worked on the issue for 15 years. This year, the largest line item change in CSU's proposed budget is for salary adjustments. It's unclear, though, how much or who would benefit, but officials say priority will go to those at the lower end of the pay scale. Associate Professor Gretchen O'Dell says in her department, languages, literatures, and cultures, most non-tenure track faculty make in the 50,000s. It's quite difficult to survive on that salary in Fort Collins, so a lot of non-tenure track faculty work multiple jobs, two, three jobs. A recent faculty survey paints a bleak picture, with many saying they can't survive any longer on the low pay. They're recommending a base salary of 70000 for the lowest paid faculty members, which they say is the national average for peer institutions. Non-tenure track faculty across all ranks earn about 88 percent of the national median for peer institutions. You have people who have been working here with a PhD for 20 plus years and they still don't make 60K. 
And that seems wrong to me. Another concern, salary compression. That's when there's little difference in pay between a new faculty member and a 10-year veteran. Vice Provost for Faculty Affairs Sue James sees improvement. We've made more progress on internal salary equity than some of these other issues over the last many years. But faculty say much work is needed. Teresa Wernemont, who teaches business communications, notes that one report shows that men at her rank earn between $25,000 and $30,000 more than women with similar education levels and experience in the College of Business. When a dollar amount is placed on my work, and it's so disparate from these other individuals, it tells me I'm not respected. And that does take a toll. It takes a toll. Non-tenure track faculty say there are other inequities. A tenured associate professor may earn 75000 while that same rank for a non-tenure track person in the same department is 56000 CSU's Nerger says that's because tenured professors do more research. That's a different job, so they're going to be paid differently. Research in the STEM fields brought in $457 million last year, a huge chunk of the university's budget. Some faculty are also upset by massive pay gaps between, say, faculty in mechanical engineering and literature. But Provost James says salaries are determined by market forces. It is about market forces. I mean, we live in the world and we recruit and hire faculty in a competitive environment. Others counter that more than two-thirds of the undergraduate teaching on campus is carried out by non-tenure track and temporary faculty. In other words, they're the biggest generator of tuition dollars. They say teaching just isn't valued like research. Gretchen O'Dell. Teaching and helping support students, that's a very invisible emotional labor that just does not really get recognized and This university would not function without non-tenure track faculty. Again, John Kitchens. I don't mind subsidizing the research, academic work of many of my colleagues tenured. I just need a sustainable wage. One fact is indisputable. The university gets revenue largely from student tuition and the state. Colorado spends the second least in the nation per student. In 2021, it was about 65 percent of the U.S. average. Interim Provost Jan Nerger. We just don't have the money to write the check. That has consequences as faculty are forced to leave. I meet senior instructor Christine Disco on the university's leaf-strewn oval. She has 27 years of teaching experience and earns about $54,000 a year. She worries that students won't get the quality of teaching they're paying for, especially when many got behind during the pandemic. How are they going to get back when 50% of their teachers at CSU are checked out, burnt out, overworked, and underpaid and can't live here? Some non-tenure-track faculty are hopeful. They believe they have the administration's ear. Others are skeptical because administrators have dashed their hopes before. Christine Disco. The Board of Governors has the survey. Where, where is the response? Where have they met with us? They have not met with us. They have not talked to us. They have not responded to us. CSU's Jan Nerger expects conversations on salary to begin in earnest when CSU names a new president in December. Everything is on the table. Absolutely. We see the problem. We have to solve the problem. I'm Jenny Brendine, Colorado Public Radio News. That's Colorado Matters for today. Thanks for joining us, and thanks to the entire team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. 
Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher, Matt Hers, Michael Hughes, Chris Ketchum, Pedro Lumbrano, Patrice Mondragon, Shane Rumsey, Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas Woodfield. You're with CPR News and KRCC.